When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 Million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Leslie Chang. Today, we're bringing you a conversation that our producer Mike Osborne had with author Christian Parenti. Christian is currently a professor at New York University, and next year he's going to be starting at John Jay College of Justice. He worked as a journalist for many years and has reported from war zones in Afghanistan and Iraq. In 2011, he published Tropic of Chaos, a book about how climate intersects with conflict and war. More recently, he wrote a chapter in a book called Anthropocene or Capitalocene, The book was edited by Jason Moore, who has a provocative critique about the Anthropocene as a concept. Mike began the conversation by asking Christian to lay out Jason Moore's argument for why the capitalocene is perhaps a better term. Why is the term Anthropocene problematic, and and why is perhaps the term capitalocene better? Well, there is a Malthusian subtext to the term Anthropocene. And that's not historically accurate in terms of capturing the variety of roles that human beings have played as environment-making agents. And uh, so Jason's point is that more specifically, the problem that modern civilization faces, the the crisis of sustainability or the lack of sustainability of modern civilization is rooted not in human beings, but rather in the specific set of social relations that are global capitalism. That is the key problem that's driving uh, this civilization towards any number of um, environmental crises that the first and foremost to my mind most important one being climate change so i agree with that that the problem is not human beings not quote-unquote man but um the problem is capitalist social relations every organism is part of every other organism's environment and every organism interacts with its environment in a way that that is productive of that environment not just passive so Beavers need beaver ponds. They don't find them ready-made. They create them. And in the process, they create wetlands. They create the environment. And similarly, human beings have done that. Right now, we are despoiling the planet by burning fossil fuels. But if you look back at human history, there are examples of people playing really constructive roles within the environment. In particular, from where I'm sitting right now in New York City, um, Native Americans in uh, this part of the country, the Northeast, were very, very active, aggressive environment makers. And uh, Native Americans in the Northeast burnt the landscape in the fall and the spring so as to create clearings 
keep down ticks and other uh, unwanted species and create browse for deer, create edge habitat for deer and other animals that they hunted. And so this idea that, that um, Native American society was sustainable because they didn't tamper with the environment, that's not historically accurate. So that's just one example that kind of shows how human interaction with the environment can create more life. So that, that's the basic idea between drawing a distinction around the, the Anthropocene versus the Capitalocene. The Capitalocene is uh, a term that is more exact and specific and gets away from from a subtext which is problematic not just because it's incorrect it's not just some academic point but there's a political problem that if you really think that human beings are intruders into a garden and all we're doing is wrecking things well then be the change you want to see and commit suicide right 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 right, right. yeah i agree that capitalocene as a term is certainly more specific and more diagnostic um whereas anthropocene is is perhaps vague, if, and, and that point I absolutely take. That it misplaces the problem, I'm not totally convinced, but I, I think I'd want to kind of have some conversation about that in a little bit, um, because I find all of this uh, very, very compelling. And also, um, well, okay, let's, let's get into it a little bit. Before we start talking about the rethinking of nature, I would like to talk just a little bit about Tropic of Chaos. One thing that strikes me about it is, you know, this book came out in 2011. I read a bunch of science about climate and co- conflict, uh, really kind of came to my attention in 2013, 2014. So I, I feel like you were a little bit ahead of the curve. And I know you got turned on to it a little bit because of your reporting in Afghanistan. Can you talk a little bit about that? What uh, what sort of led you down the path to want to write that book, particularly in Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. Well, I when I was reporting in Afghanistan, uh, I did a couple stories for different magazines separated by a few years about the poppy trade uh, you know poppy produces opium from which heroin is derived in afghanistan it is the source for the vast majority of the world's heroin and um I, every time i interviewed the farmers you know there was there was risks to involved to to the whole uh, farming of poppy because the karzai government and the nato forces supporting them were officially trying to eradicate poppy. So um, I was trying to figure out how does the heroin trade, opium trade, you know, poppy crop work. And one thing that the farmers always said in these interviews, which at first I didn't even quite get was, um, they would say, well, you know, and another reason that we do this is poppy is very drought resistant. And at first I didn't realize that Afghanistan was living through the worst drought in in living memory because it you know the, the place looks generally pretty dry um and sure enough uh, afghanistan is suffering this major drought and poppy uses one-fifth to one-sixth the amount of water that traditional afghan crops like wheat and uh apricots and raisins use so given this extreme weather that has coincided with, with most of the nato occupation and and a nation building project in Afghanistan given given that the drought punctuated by you know occasional flooding poppy is the only crop that is environmentally viable what was revealed in all that to me was that along with all of the other ethnic and religious reasons that a farmer would have for supporting the Taliban 
in Afghanistan, there was this other added environmental reason, which is that that's the side in the conflict that is defending your right as a farmer to grow the only crop that, given the drought, is going to make you any money. So I thought, well, you know, I mean, if, if there's a climatological angle to this conflict, which is so complex and old and, and clearly has these many other forces uh, driving it, there, there certainly must be climatological angles or aspects to other conflicts. And so I set out to tell a variety of stories about how climate change is already feeding into conflict and already fueling conflict. And it always does that by interacting with other pre-existing problems. I mean, it very rarely is it just climate change driving violence. It's like climate change generally interacting with bad economic policies in the form of free market fundamentalism, which has throughout the global south reduced governments, reduced the state to incapable corrupt bureaucracies that if they wanted to respond to droughts and floods often don't even have the capacity. The other pre-existing crisis that climate change interacts with is the legacy of Cold War militarism, which has littered much of the global south with cheap weaponry and men, primarily men, trained in the arts of asymmetrical warfare, uh, either as insurgents or as counterinsurgents. And so you put all this together and you get this kind of repeating pattern. It's always slightly different, but also quite similar, where people, usually rural people at first, facing uh, an environmental crisis, turning to the state, there's nothing there, so they have to adapt somehow and one of the simplest ways to adapt is to pick up this cheap weaponry and return to the ways of the gun. So, you know, one of the things that really fascinates me about this literature, um, I, I mean, and you, you, you know, several times in your answer there, you use the language, you know, climate angle, it interacts with other forces. I, I think the, from a hard sciences perspective, the attribution problem of, you know, how much is climate a factor? Can we quantify that? Can we say 30% of this conflict or 80% or what have you? Uh, and and I, I realized like, I'm, I'm like, that's sort of impossible. But it's also, it, it's, as you said, never the sole driving force of, of what's underneath conflict. But it also, I think that the other thing I sort of wrestle with here is that um, there's also a part of me that worries that the climate and conflict literature is actually conforming to a pre-existing narrative about what climate does. Uh, and it's sort of, if you believe climate is a driving force for shaping not just nature, but social relationships, uh, then the climate and conflict literature feels robust. On the other hand, um, if you're a climate denialist or whatever you want to say, it's like, oh, they're just trying to make up something else here that goes along with uh, their story of, of, of how climate matters. Does that make sense as sort of a, a, a problem? I mean, maybe it's one that should be dismissed because it's not founded in reality. But, um, but I'm curious to hear your reaction all the same. Um, I, I'm not quite sure I followed that, but I, I mean, if I can take it again, if the, you want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what, you're, what you're what you're asking is like how seriously to take the science in a sense. That's the wrong way of putting it. But what do we do with an understanding that climate? intersects in ways that are difficult to quantify, but but that does uh, serve as a threat multiplier. I just, I'm not quite sure how we should use that information other than be more scared about what global warming is going to mean for the next, you know, coming generations. Well, I think what it means is that we have to look at the 
the ingredients that climate change is interacting with, right? That that is becomes as vital a part of the problem. So uh, it means we really have to uh, reinterrogate militarism and free market fundamentalism. Yes, climate change unfolds differently in different political contexts. So, all right, then what we have to do is create a social political context in which the results of the amount of climate change that we're locked in for aren't devastating, right? So how does the social adaptation catch up with the the physical changes that are that are locked in you know so there's the physical adaptation but then there's the social adaptation if millions of people are going to be on the move you know what are we going to do i mean at one level there's a choice of uh building walls and drifting towards fascism or we're going to have to have a completely different discourse around migration about immigration so that's how i see it is that it's it throws it throws the responsibility back onto social sciences of like really trying to articulate new political economic visions for the immediate and long-term future. Very well said. I mean, I think one of the things that, uh, just to sort of add to it a a little bit, um, I mean, I want to talk a bit about uh, how you've come to view the state as an entity that is going to be fundamental for responding and 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 adapting and, and mitigating climate change um and and uh, you know probably the simple thing to do here the best thing to do is start by you know defining the state because i think you make the point uh we've lost some of the you know fundamental understanding of it mm-hmm. yeah i mean the state exists in partly to contain and bail out and reproduce capitalism capital uh, and to enforce coordination upon it to say you know you you are allowed to you know dump your toxic waste over here but not over there and you're allowed to produce this type of it but not that type of it and if that umpire role didn't exist the the biosphere and social existence would quickly unravel Oh, biosphere as well. I think that that's an important point. I mean, the, the sort of control over nature and the uh, capitalizing and, and extracting, you know, the, the, the labor, if you want to put it that way, or the value that nature provides, because that's what nature does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, getting back to Jason Moore's work, I mean, he edited a book recently in which I have a piece arguing in the fashion of his own work that that the state is fundamentally an environment making institution because the state is a territorially fixed entity that's that's what government is it rests on and so being in a geographic entity it, it, it historically and in the present part of what the modern state does is deliver non-human nature up for production some parts are kept in reserve other parts are offered up and the history of American development, which is this, gets into the book I'm currently working on now, is is really fundamentally a story of government managing, planning, and sort of doling out the use values or the utilities of non-human nature for the use of the market. And you know that's how trees standing in a forest become capital, right? The crucial membrane between nature, if you will, and the world of money is the state saying this tree you can take, that tree you can't take, right? That, I mean, uh, that might be a little abstract, but so that's one, you know, that's one fundamental truth about what the state does. The state makes environments, right? I mean, the, um, in, in doing all of this, the state is producing wittingly, consciously or unconsciously, 
So part of the solution is that we have to become more conscious of the state as an environment producing entity. The state allows uh, fossil fuel corporations to mine coal and drill for oil on public land. In fact, most most uh, oil is owned by government-owned firms globally. I think it's about 70% of all oil reserves are publicly owned. So that's a, that's a rather stark example of the state as an environment-making entity. You know, the state is is tacitly producing climate change by allowing these publicly owned resources to be exploited. So we're making the environment whether we're conscious of that or not. And what we have to do is become conscious of it. And the state has to start leading the transition to uh, a clean energy economy. Right. And that that can be easily done. I could explain, you know, some ideas about that. But yeah. I, I definitely want to talk about that more, but I do want to first sort of take a moment to link this up with the earlier critique of the Anthropocene, right? That the idea of, of, of a pristine, untouched nature, which has never exists as long as humans have, have been there, or really any other organism, but let's stick with humans. Um, Native Americans burned landscapes to create a kind of, you know... Um, game park same thing yeah. in south africa same thing in australia that and and whether you want to call those states or not is probably irrelevant i think the point is that we manage landscapes to have nature deliver value and that right. and that part of the the fallacy of 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 conceptualizing nature as something pristine has political realities. I mean, I think that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about uh, learning about your work as I've been doing research is that, you know, philosophically, I can get my head around the idea that there's no such thing as wilderness, right? That there's no such thing as untouched nature, especially uh, in a time of global warming. We have influenced the surface of the earth, you know, at a planetary scale um, and, and are continuing to do so. And it's not just global warming, it's deforestation and agriculture and so many other things. But I think that where your work has actually really furthered my thinking is that we have to start with understanding the state as an environmental making, you know, um, whatever, a process. Institution. Institution, yeah. yeah. Um, if we then want to turn that t towards remedies and turn that towards, um, you know, decarbonization as a starting point. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it feels like that that's actually a really important but also easily lost thing, that you, you really have to hammer home that point to the environmental community um, if you want any kind of political activism around it. Yes. Well, that's what, that's what I've been trying to do for the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, you I get know, it. The, your, your question, I mean, your, human beings are environment-making organisms like all organisms so the point about the state is is a historically specific one it's not it's not that human beings only make environments through states or have always done that in in history but just that now that states are the key institution and part of the problem politically that you get at in your question is that um we are we don't think about the state that much the state is out of fashion and i think that is the result of uh neoliberal economic sort of intellectual conquest Right, 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 right. Well, so, okay, you know, you, you alluded to it a moment ago uh, about, you know, what the state as an environmental constructing entity and, or an institution does and can do. And I do want to ask a little bit about how your thinking has evolved, um, you know, now that Donald Trump is president of the United States. But let's go back and pretend we're recording this conversation six months ago. And maybe maybe the answer doesn't change that much. I mean, I think some of the, the pre-existing reality of what the state can do to uh, 
to move us towards decarbonization of the energy sector, you know, a a lot of those things are still in place. But before we get there, you know, let's pretend we're having this conversation six months ago, Mm -hmm. you know, and let's talk about the state as an environmental making entity in a world that needs to draw down carbon. So what I have been saying for the last couple of years was that, you know, the good news is we, we have what we need to address the climate crisis, right? We have what we need to deal with the climate crisis in that we have the laws, we have the technology and we have the money. Um, we, you know, we have, we have, uh, speaking with the technology, it's not like we haven't invented electric automobiles. It's not like we don't have, uh, an electrical grid. It's not like we haven't invented photovoltaic technology and commercial scale solar and, um, you know, commercial scale wind on and on and on, right? All these technologies exist. The problem is how do you scale them up? So there's tons of technology, but how would you scale it up? Well, you, you need money, right? And you need the laws. Um, we have the uh, the laws, believe it or not, in that the Clean Air Act is the enabling legislation we need. The Clean Air Act of 1970 was modified by a lawsuit called Massachusetts versus EPA. Massachusetts and the Green Groups and these other states sue the EPA and they say, according to the law, the language of the Clean Air Act, the EPA must regulate greenhouse gas emissions because if smokestack emissions will cause human harm, then the EPA has to regulate it. It takes 10 years for that case to be resolved in the Supreme Court. And in 2007, the Supreme Court says, yes, the EPA not has the right to, if it wants to, has the obligation, must regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And we have the money. We have the money in a number of forms. The public sector is an enormous part of the economy. The federal government is a major consumer of energy. It has about 450,000 large, generally energy inefficient office buildings. It could jumpstart a whole industry in building retrofitting if it committed to retrofitting all those buildings. It has numerous large fleets of vehicles, excluding the military even. Um, the, the post office alone has about 140,000 vehicles that, that mostly travel around 18 miles a day and park in the same place every night. And there's no reason that those vehicles shouldn't be electrified, right? So the state could use the money it spends on vehicles, on energy consumption, on building maintenance to drive a green, clean energy transition. It could also reallocate large parts of the military budget, right? Enormous military budget. What could be more central to human security than fending off the worst of climate change? Once that was that that level of investment happened, there would be economies of scale and electric vehicles would drop in price to the point where they were competitive or even, you know, uh, cheaper than fossil fuel vehicles. I mean, as it is, there's there's lots of ways that the government could drive this um, this energy transition and trigger this vast pool of private sector money to go into building out the infrastructure that we need. Something I, I tried to get out earlier and probably didn't describe my thinking very well uh, when, uh, in terms of how climate interacts and intersects with um, social institutions and, and, and how we kind of shape society. Um, but, you know, <laughs> there's a part of me, and I guess the overly simplistic way to ask this question is to say, you know, we have seen a rise of, uh, of, of populism and xenophobia around the globe over the last year, year and a half, however far back you want to go. And 
I'm curious, you know, is there a part of you that attributes some of that to growing climate threats, whether it's extreme weather or uh, or, or or whatever you know, you know, the other manifestations of climate change are, or is that going too far? I mean, I'm trying. I want to be responsible with drawing the connections between the environmental forces that shape us and 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 the social phenomenon we're observing. I would say yes, but in a very very attenuated fashion, to the extent that the flow of refugees out of Syria is partially caused by climate change, then the xenophobic reaction in Europe is to some extent linked to that, right? And and the flow of refugees out of Syria is to some extent linked to climate change. Uh, it, Syria suffers a major drought just as the Assad regime is trying to curry favor with the West and imposing austerity and cutting subsidies to rural Sunni farmers. They, in the face of the drought, are losing their land, leaving the land, coming into cities where they become a kind of new lumpen proletariat in a world, in a society dominated by Alawite, urban Alawite elites. And so a protest movement emerges along these sectarian lines and then it blows up into a civil war and it looks like, oh, the Sunni majority against the Alawite ruling cliques, which it is. But part of what drove that was austerity, economic austerity policies, and part of it was this drought that is linked to climate change. So then out of that cauldron of uh, civil war, emerge these refugees flows, people fleeing the violence. And then the reaction, I mean, there are reactions in Europe, right? I mean, there are also plenty of Europeans who are, um, you know, welcoming these people and standing in solidarity with them and pushing back against the rise of these right-wing parties and xenophobic states like in Hungary and stuff like that. But there's also the other reaction, which is that, you know, the, the xenophobes have um, have more traction than they've had in a while. And we're seeing border militarization. We're seeing the EU throw enormous amounts of resources to Frontex and to sort of militarize the, the Mediterranean. So yes, in a very, very attenuated way that the vast majority of players in the situation don't even understand themselves, I think you could say there is a causal element in the rise of populism that has something to do with, with climate change. So... I, I think that what, you know, I began the conversation by uh, asking you a little bit about this Anthropocene critique. Um, and I think that one thing that motivates a lot of our project here on Generation Anthropocene is um, trying to sort of suss out a principled view of, of environmentalism in the 21st century, taking in all the, those critiques of Malthusian uh, narratives, uh, you know, apocalyptic narratives, not to mention, you know, sort of myths of pristine wilderness and maybe most importantly, misanthropy. So I, I guess the question I really want to pose to you is, in a constructive way, uh, recognizing all these problems with you know environmentalism as it emerged in the late 1960s, what suggestions do you have for people who do have a real green thumb and, and, and do care tremendously about biodiversity and social justice? Um, because I do think that this generation is struggling to put all of those things into one sort of ethical framework. Well, I mean, I think that people need to think collectively. They need to realize that there is no individual solution. You can't escape. You know, there's a lot of great 
things in, in the American green tradition, but that there's two, I think, weak spots that we could do better thinking about and then uh, developing activism around. And one is about the nature of the state and the essential role of government and state power and how that is the institution that can and does stand up to business. I mean, if we really want to euthanize the fossil fuel industry, it's not going to happen through shaming them or convincing them. Eventually, the government's going to have to say, yeah, you know what? You can't burn fossil fuels anymore. It's over. Um, and then another sort of blind spot or weak spot, I think, is technology. There is this, you know, a catchphrase in the U.S. environmental movement of like no techno fix, which means you can't just have some technology to fix things. Right. We also have to deal with social relations. And I completely agree with that. However, that sometimes no techno fix can sometimes slide into meaning technology isn't part of the solution. And that I think is dangerous because we're we're beyond the tipping points in terms of uh, CO2 parts per million in the atmosphere. But here's something that is rarely ever talked about, right? We have the technology to strip CO2 out of the atmosphere a hundred times faster than trees can artificially. We have the technology to not only store tech, uh, CO2 as a gas, right, which is problematic because it can leak out and it's a poison and all that, but to actually turn it into something like um, sodium bicarbonate, like, and even turn it into limestone, like the, CO2 can be turned into solids. So this technology exists. Civilization be, should be spending more on that than anything else so as to save ourselves from runaway climate change. Because the great danger in all this is that, you know, the breakdown of ecosystems like the, the, the dying and burning of boreal forests and tropical forests, forests which are now net carbon sinks, could become major sources of carbon emission. And right now, human civilizations burning a fossil fuel is still the main source of greenhouse gas emissions, which means it's still primarily within our control. Once these other, um, once, once these environmental systems start unraveling like that, it could really be um, totally out of our control. And, you know, the, the worst example of that is like the methane stored under the permafrost. Yeah. In Ven the Venus runaway, you know, Hanson right. sort of uh, scenarios right. of uh, yeah, yep. runaway greenhouse effects. Um, I mean, the other thing I've heard you speak speaking to in the past too is the having a politics that's not you know all or nothing. That where we look for more similarities because uh, there there are, for example, religious groups that take uh, the issue of environmental stewardship very seriously. Uh, but people on the left may disagree with them about, you know, reproductive rights or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and and that actually seems to me to be another critical point for uh, just building, you know, um, coalitions. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Yeah, um, we have to we have to get beyond the kind of um, the purity of the call out culture and that and that sort of sectarian performance art that is a lot of particularly the campus left. Yeah. You know, and a lot of, I mean, my, my wife is from a Christian fundamentalist family. She's not a Christian fundamentalist, but my in-laws are Christian fundamentalists in Kentucky. And I go down there a couple of times a year. A lot of those people, particularly young ones, are like, they're not even, they don't even really want to overturn Roe v. Wade, but they're they're so religious. Like, but then you realize, okay, wait a minute, being, being a Christian, it can mean all sorts of things. And, you know, very few of these people are going to be actively pro-choice, but I know a lot of younger people there or a few younger people there who, who would not feel comfortable like trying to outlaw abortion completely. They realize like that, and that's a problem. And they, you know, they have their own personal beliefs around that issue, but 
you know, they're actually effectively kind of progressive on the issue in terms of policy. So, yeah, uh, the environmental movement, the left is going to have to get to know America and get comfortable with the, you know, the kind of square traditional aspects um, of uh, of the background culture in, in, in much of this country. And we're going to have to come together not on everything, but on some of the, the key things that really matter to us, like, you know, saving a livable environment and redistributing wealth and, and creating jobs so that our economy doesn't turn into some, you know, terrible caricature of a kind of banana republic, a financialized joke of an economy. And that's that's very much the direction that it's headed in. And it's causing enormous suffering. And um, and that suffering is fueling, unfortunately, sometimes some really reactionary populism. Yeah. And, you know, just to add one addendum to that sort of uh, thought about religiosity, it does strike me that environmentalists who sort of aspire to that uh, transcendent experience, uh, you know, that's also a religious impulse. So maybe there's a lot more commonality there than we sometimes recognize. Good point. When's, when's the book coming out? It's due, uh, I guess it'll come out next year. I, I have to hand in the manuscript this summer. Christian Perini, uh, congratulations on the move over. Uh, thank you for making time for this conversation. We covered a lot of ground and I really enjoyed it. Likewise, thank you and good luck with everything. All right, talk soon. All right, bye. That was Mike Osborne in conversation with Christian Parenti. Once again, Christian's 2011 book is called Tropic of Chaos. Our show is produced by Jackson Roach, Mike Osborne, Miles Traer, and me, Leslie Chang. Special thanks also to Tom Hayden and Isha Salian. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. You can learn more about the podcast online at www.genanthro.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next Tuesday.